Well, good evening, everyone, and thank you, Kyle, the music team, for leading us in worship and helping us to prepare our hearts to listen to God's word this evening. Tonight, we will be continuing our study of Paul's letter to the Romans, and I invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn to Romans chapter 4. We will be studying verses 9 to 17. And we are returning to the great teaching of not only this book, but of the New Testament, that we are justified, that is, we are declared right before God by grace alone, through faith alone. You may remember, if you have been going through this study with us, that this chapter uses Abraham, the Jewish patriarch, as a case study for how God has, throughout Redemptive history justified the ungodly. He has justified sinners by faith alone. So we will be continuing our consideration of Abraham, and we will take a look at circumcision as well, which I'm sure is the topic that brought all of you out here this evening. We will begin reading in verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham? our forefather according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say... For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, Faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. 
So reads the word of the living God. In the middle of the 1990s, all attention was focused on our very own city of Los Angeles. Orenthal James Simpson, more commonly known as OJ, or for those who watch his football career, Juice, was on trial. The beloved star running back from USC was a winner of the Heisman Trophy in 1968 and played 11 seasons in the NFL for the Buffalo Bills. After he retired, he used his charisma and charm as a color commentator for football games on NBC and starred in various TV shows and movies. He was, by all accounts, the man. Simpson married Nicole Brown in February of 1985, and they lived together in Brentwood in a fluent area close to, here, close to us here at UCLA. However, their marriage lasted only seven years before Nicole filed for divorce in 1992 on the grounds of irreconcilable differences. Even when they attempted to reconcile after the divorce, there was a 911 call from Nicole pleading for help against an angry O.J. Simpson. Eight months later, at approximately midnight, Nicole Brown and her friend Ron Goldman were found dead outside her condo in Brentwood. It took the police a couple of hours to find the victims, along with some other evidence, including a bloody glove. A warrant for O.J. Simpson's arrest was issued, but he did not turn himself in before being broadcasted on ABC, NBC, CBS, and CNN, riding in a white Ford Bronco while being chased by the police. The trial soon commenced, and O.J. created his dream team of defense attorneys, including none other than Robert Kardashian. Yes, that Kardashian. The prosecution, led by attorney Marsha Clark, led the jury through a host of evidence from DNA analysis of blood, strands of hair belonging to Simpson, uh, from the crime scene, and even an analysis of shoe prints from the scene. However, it wasn't until O.J. was asked to put on a glove from the crime scene that things began to change. After placing the sanitary gloves on his hands, because it was a bloody glove, in the presence of everyone who was in the courthouse and everyone who was watching on television, Simpson took the glove and placed it on his hand, but it did not fit in all the way. Showed it to everyone, pulled it down. It wasn't going down any further. The glove was too small. With this stunning turn of events, the defense repeated a phrase that is often one of the only things remembered from the trial today. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Sure enough, at the end of 1995, with about 100 million people worldwide watching or listening to the verdict, O.J. Simpson was acquitted of murder on both counts. Whether or not you believe justice was served in that trial, the entirety of the case highlights the value of a defense that casts some doubt. In an interview after the trial, some jurors said they believe Simpson did commit the murder but believe that the prosecution did not sufficiently show that he did beyond any reasonable doubt. By casting doubt, the defense was able to obtain an acquittal. As we return to our consideration of the book of Romans, we have seen much evidence that before God, we stand in a far worse situation 
than O.J. Simpson did in his murder trial. In the dark tunnel found in the opening chapters of Romans, we find clear teaching of a universal problem. There is a holy God, creator of heaven and earth, righteous and just, worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our complete obedience to the greatest commandment that we should love the Lord our God with all our hearts and with all our souls and with all our minds. And yet in spite of that, the testimony of Scripture and our honest assessment of ourselves is, as we have seen in Romans 3, 9 and 23, that none is righteous, no, not one, and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The thing about the words none and all is that they are very inclusive. They apply to me and they apply to you. The fearful testimony of the entire Bible is that I am a sinner and so are you. We are created beings who have offended our creator. In the courtroom of the eternal God, we stand condemned. Nothing could be worse. The evidence is stacked against us and there. Is, is no reasonable doubt. There is no defense coming that can cast doubt on the legitimacy of our offenses. We stand in the courtroom hoping that Paul can shed some light on any hope for us to gain an acquittal, uh, any hope that we can be free of the charges set against us. That is the question we explore tonight. How can we obtain an acquittal from our charges? How do we obtain a not guilty verdict when the verdict of guilt is so clear? The teaching of the New Testament, and especially here in Romans 3 and 4, is that we are forgiven of that which we are guilty of by faith alone. The term that we use to describe that reality is justification. Justification is a forensic, which, which is a legal standing before God, where the one who has faith in Jesus Christ is declared righteous by God. Chris has taught us that this is a declaration rather than an impartation of righteousness. That means that when we are justified, ungodly sinners are declared to be righteous as a gift of God's grace. Our souls are not infused with an inherent righteousness or a righteousness that belongs to us, but rather we are counted righteous because we are united. We are connected to Jesus Christ by faith. In Romans 3, 24 and 25, we find that this glorious justification comes because Christ has bought us from the bondage to sin. He has redeemed us by offering himself as a propitiation. Chris gave us that helpful picture of Jesus as a propitiation by describing him as the wrath quencher. Jesus has satisfied, he has appeased, he has placated the wrath of God on our behalf, for those who would place their faith in him, for those who trust him, love him, and confess him as Lord, Christ became our substitute in the courtroom. The means by which this comes about is faith. When we speak of justification by faith, this is what we are referring to. You may ask then, where do people get the idea that this faith alone is the grounds, the reason, the basis for this legal status of justified. You might say that certainly faith must be a part of it, but God cannot clear me of my guilt entirely because of another person. I must have something to contribute. I must bring something to the table. 
God has revealed in God has revealed his law in the Old Testament for a reason, right? If I adhere to those commands, if I follow those rules, then God will receive my faith and my obedience, will he not? Well, fortunately, this is not the case. God, Paul declares that both Jews and Gentiles alike, all of us, are saved by faith alone, apart from our efforts to keep the law and its commands. In chapter 3, verse 28, Paul says, For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. This is a claim that we see throughout the New Testament in classic texts such as Galatians 2.16, Ephesians 2.8 and 9, and Philippians 3.9. This justification occurs by means of faith alone because of the accomplishment of Christ. The teaching of Paul and the New Testament is that we believe in divine accomplishment rather than human achievement. We obtain a right standing before God, not by our own merits, but by the merit of another. Namely, Jesus Christ, the righteous. This was certainly scandalous, especially to the Jewish listener. And so Paul deals with various objections to this teaching that we will see in our text. Tonight, we will look at justification by faith alone under three headings. The first is found in verses 9 to 12 the ground of justification by faith alone. The second in verses 13 to 15, the promise of justification by faith alone. And the last is in verses 16 to 17, the God of justification by faith alone. So the ground, the promise, and the God of justification by faith alone. So let's look at the ground, the basis of justification by faith alone. Let's go back to verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. So Paul uses a rhetorical question here to draw our attention to a difficulty that many listeners would have with his message. Jewish listeners were very concerned about the role of circumcision in salvation and justification. Paul has stated that a righteous standing before God comes apart from works of the law. But what about circumcision? You may recall from last time that we looked at David's expression in the Psalms of the blessedness of the one whose sins are forgiven, covered and not counted against them. This is the blessing that's being referred to here in verse 9. Now, the question is, is this blessing of forgiveness given to those who are uncircumcised? Is it given to the Gentiles? God commanded circumcision as a distinctive for the people of God. Did he not? Faith may be the instrument by which we are counted righteous, but surely this must only come to the people of God, those who are circumcised, those who are truly Jews or a member of God's covenant people. We find that this is a significant issue throughout the New Testament. Uh, if you would, please turn with me to the books, book of Acts, chapter 15. I'll read verses 1 through 11, where we can see this issue of circumcision more clearly in another place of the New Testament. Starting in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. 
And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, Is it necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep it? Oh, excuse me, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. We can see that from the very inception of the church, this was a significant issue. And Paul labors with great care to demonstrate that circumcision is not a requirement for salvation. So as we consider this, we, we must keep in mind that this question comes in the midst of studying Abraham and the declaration from God that he counted Abraham as righteous. That four that we see in the second part of the verse highlights that the key to understanding this question must come from Abraham. Verses 1 through 8 show us that Abraham was counted righteous by faith, but it makes no mention of whether or not he was circumcised. As Austin pointed out last time, Abraham is the model for the Jews. He is their forefather. He is their patriarch. So the true question begins to materialize. If the blessing of forgiveness came to Abraham by faith, did he receive that blessing because he was circumcised? Paul is setting up a question of chronology here, a question of order, what happened first. And we can only find that answer by going to the source, going to the Old Testament. So if you would, you can turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. You can find the answer to this question of order. In verse 6, we find the words quoted in this chapter of Romans. And he believed God, and he believed the Lord, excuse me, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Afterwards, Abraham received the promise that his offspring would be as many as the stars. And then Abraham sought to fulfill the promise in his old age on his own terms by having a son with his wife's servant, Hagar. Hagar gave birth to a son named Ishmael, who was born when Abraham was 86 years old. In chapter 17, we find that, that about 13 to 14 years after Abraham was counted righteous, God commanded Abraham to be circumcised in verse 11 as a sign of the covenant God made with him. Abraham obeyed the Lord 
and was circumcised at 99 years old. Ouch. Which we can see in verse 24 of the same chapter. So Abraham believed, was counted righteous, and then 13 to 14 years later, he was circumcised. So now we're going to turn to Romans. And in verse 10, Paul asks the question, how was the righteousness counted to him? Was it before or was it after he had been circumcised? That is to say, to know whether or not circumcision is an essential reason for why we are saved, we must know whether righteousness was counted to Abraham as a circumcised person or as an uncircumcised person. The answer we have just seen is that Abraham was counted righteous by God before he was circumcised. If this is true of Abraham, who is considered here as the model of one who received the blessing of justification from God, then it is clear that circumcision does not play a role as the grounds of our salvation. When standing in the courtroom, God's decision does not depend at all on the status of one's circumcision. This is Paul's conclusion, and it has been this way as long as God has been redeeming sinners. Now, I know that this might not be a particular struggle for you. The role circumcision plays in salvation probably hasn't crossed your mind too often. This may have been an issue 2,000 years ago, but it certainly isn't relevant to our modern age. But before you label me as out of touch, let me appeal to you to consider all rituals and ceremonies for a minute. If that which God commanded all the males of his covenant people to take part in under the old covenant, if that plays no role in our justification and plays no role in our salvation, what should we then conclude about any form of religious ritual or ceremony? For us, we must consider laying aside anything apart from faith, whether it be baptism, communion, signing a card, walking an aisle, reading a certain book, not partying on Thursday nights, living a more moral life than those around us, doing the best we can to live the best life, or even praying a prayer without truly repenting and turning away from sin and to Christ in faith. Any of those things, none of them play a role in our final salvation, our justification. And friends, this is good news. This is good news. It is all of grace. It is all of God's grace. Just as Abraham received the covenant and was counted as righteous by a free act of the grace of our God, an act of unmerited favor from him, so too can we have the assurance that we are saved by the same grace. This is the wonderful news of the gospel, and it is free to all, without exception, to Jews and to Gentiles alike. Praise God that he has provided righteousness for us. So the next natural question is this. What's the point? What's, what's, what's the point of circumcision? Why is, it, why is it such a big deal? When God established his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17, 
It was commanded of every male born in a Jewish household to be circumcised when they're eight days old. Even foreigners living among the Israelites were to be circumcised. This was not a suggestion, but a command of the covenant. In verse 14 of Genesis 17, we read that any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. If you look at Exodus chapter 4, we find a very strange story in verses 21 to 26 where God is seeking to put his servant Moses to death on account of his negligence in circumcising his son. This comes immediately after God tells Moses that he intends to use him as his messenger to Pharaoh and he was going to give him power to perform miracles. I don't think there's any doubt that God takes circumcision very seriously and the Jewish people take it seriously as well. So what's it for? It's not the basis for our justification. So what is it for? Paul gives us the answer in Romans chapter 4, verse 11. Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Circumcision is important to God because it signifies outwardly an inward reality. Does that sound familiar to you guys? A sign is supposed to point to something else, and it's silly to equate the sign with that which it is pointing to. Nobody stops their car at Disneyland at the parking lot and climbs on the Disneyland sign and claims they went to Disneyland. They'd be saving a lot of money, that's for sure, but it would be pretty ridiculous to hear them complain when they climb down that the sign, when they climb down the sign about how disappointed they were that Disneyland didn't have Matterhorn. That'd be pretty ridiculous. Well, I submit to you that it is equally ridiculous for one to claim that they have the promise of blessedness that Abraham had, the same one, the same one of forgiveness, that they had it due to having the physical sign apart from the spiritual reality that it was meant to point to. So what does circumcision point to? Certainly it points to an ethnic identity. There's no doubt about that. When, when Israel enters the promised land in Joshua 5, we see Joshua circumcises the entire generation that had not yet been circumcised in the wilderness. Uh, this was a practice that continued all the way until Paul's day, who in Philippians 3 reveals his eminent qualifications as a Jew, the first being that he was circumcised on the eighth day, just as Abraham was commanded. But it is certainly much more than that. We have seen already in Romans chapter 2 that Paul teaches us that no one is a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. When a Jewish boy was circumcised, it was intended by God to reveal to his people that what was done physically on the outside is what he intended to do in their hearts. The cutting of the flesh is a sign, a pointer, to the, to the desire of God to cut away the sin that covers the heart. It's a violent image, a necessary image, as we have learned from the commands of the Old Testament. 
to learn the importance of having a pure heart before God. Now, the readers of this letter, and perhaps even you, may be thinking that this interpretation is something that is being added or inferred long after the institution of circumcision. However, we can actually see that this was exactly what was taught in the Old Testament. If you go to Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, God is speaking through Moses to Israel and says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. In Jeremiah 4.4, 4, says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. It was always in God's mind to use circumcision as a picture of what he desired of our hearts. All the scripture tells us that obedience to God is what is required of us. But what we have learned here is that our obedience in our putting to death that which is earthly, sinful, and of the flesh is not the grounds, the basis of our justification. We are not declared righteous by our obedience. We are declared righteous by the grace of God alone through the instrument of faith alone. Circumcision points to the inner reality that occurs in the hearts of those who are justified. Circumcision is not only a sign, but also a seal. That's what we learn in this verse as well. Paul uses the same word in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 2, to describe the Corinthian believers as the seal of his apostleship. That is, the believers in Corinth were the confirmation that he was an apostle of God, that he was sent from God. In the same way, circumcision authenticated, verified, and confirmed the righteous status of Abraham. It confirmed it. To demonstrate this purpose even more clearly, Paul goes on to say why these events occurred in the order they did. He says something here that, that is really profound for you and me. He says that this was done in order that Abraham might be the father of those who believe without being circumcised. So that righteousness might be counted to them as well. Praise God that Abraham is our father as well. Even those of us who are not Jews. Praise God for his grace extended to all peoples. We have a gospel that is offered without ethnic distinction. As Paul tells the Ephesians, the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles is gone in Christ. Abraham is the father of the uncircumcised and the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. We all stand equally in guilt and we all share equally in the promise. We all share equally in the offer to be spiritual children of Abraham. God has always counted sinners righteous by faith. And Paul gives us solid ground for this statement in Abraham, in whose footsteps we follow. Up to this point, we've glanced over an important detail, especially when considering the ground for justification by faith alone. It's a word that pops up repeatedly in this chapter, and it is the word counted. 
In other translations, it may say reckoned or credited. And the question comes up, how can God count us righteous? Especially when we know we are not. That's what Paul's been arguing for. We, we are not righteous. Why does God count us so? God is not so unjust as to clear the guilty arbitrarily. It comes from an understanding, the answer to this question, it comes from an understanding of imputation. Imputation is the teaching that we see most clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, where it says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. So on the cross, my sins were transferred to Christ's account. They were credited to him. They were counted to him. And he paid the punishment for us. That's what we've sung about tonight. Christ's righteousness was also transferred to my account. My sins were imputed, credited, reckoned to him. And his righteousness is reckoned, credited, imputed to me, to my account. We sing a wonderful song sometimes at church, and it's called His Robes for Mine. That's exactly happens. That's exactly what happens when we are justified. Our sinful, dirty robes are exchanged for his pure robe. God declares us righteous because we are clothed with the righteousness of his beloved son. God is just and the justifier of the ungodly. Praise God. We praise God for such a solid ground of justification for all by faith. So now we move to the second heading, the promise of justification by faith alone. We will now turn to our consideration of the promise. So we'll go back to verses 13 to 15. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So Paul begins this next section again with the word for which indicates that the statement in these verses following are intended to explain something to us. Paul mentions in verse 13 that the promise did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So up to this point in this chapter, there has been no mention of the law precisely because the law has no place in determining who are the spiritual offspring of Abraham. Paul brings it up here because, as one commentator puts it, the standard Jewish view was that Abraham's keeping of the law was what secured the promise and the blessing from God. Therefore, one could only become a child of Abraham, a, thus a child of the promise, by taking on, quote, the, the yoke of the Torah, the yoke of the law. Paul argues here that this is clearly not the case, and we have to ask why. In verse 14, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. It can't be law and faith. If we are to be heirs of the promise through the law, then we must keep the whole law. 
That's the requirement to keep the whole law. Going down the law road is a one-way street. If that's the way we're going to go about it, there's no need for faith then. It's all the law, and, and faith is nullified. It's nullified. We've earned it on our own through the law, and yet we know we can't. It, we, we, we could try, but we know we can't. Even if we try to do our very best, we fall short. So, if the promise comes through the law, it's effectively nullified. We can't keep it all. Therefore, we have no promise. We would be hopelessly lost. We are pushing the rock up the hill, but we will never get to the top. The next verse makes this clearer. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. The law, just and right and good though it is, brings wrath. If we cheat a little bit and we skip ahead in Romans, we see in chapter 5 verse 20 that the law came in to increase the trespass. And in chapter 7, we see that our sin through the law awakens all kinds of transgressions. The law reveals the sin within us. That is what it accomplishes. Now, the second clause is definitely a strange one. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. We see this word transgression used throughout the Bible, and it's a word that in English comes from the Latin meaning to step over. We, we use a simil similar idiom in English when we talk about someone crossing the line. When someone says or does something that is inappropriate, we often tell them to their face that they crossed the line. They have breached a certain standard. When someone says that Kobe is a better basketball player than LeBron, they have crossed the line when it comes to the standard of objective basketball comparison. So we come to this confusing statement. And I think we can clear it up, we can clear up its meaning by simply saying that when the law came, there was a clear standard that we could cross the line with, so to speak. Uh, a sin becomes a transgression, a, a stepping over the line that God has set when we break the law that he has commanded us to obey. The law reveals the sin inside us. And the function of the law then is to produce wrath for us. This is ultimately why any promise of God must come by grace. And the channel by which that grace comes is faith, rather than the law. Up to this point, we've skipped a very significant detail, a huge one. It says that the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. What is this promise? Sounds pretty nice. What is its significance? The promise is what we have talked about earlier. The covenant God made with Abraham. There are three clear parts to this covenant. First, that he would have a great number of descendants from many nations. The second, that he would possess the land, referring to the land of Canaan, which would later be aptly called the promised land. And the third is that through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. However, here we have an immense statement from Paul. Though we don't see it anywhere explicitly in Genesis, Paul is saying that Abraham and his offspring will inherit the world. 
It's a big step up from just the land of Canaan. So we have to ask ourselves, what's, what's going on here? How could one man be related to so many? Through Abraham, many nations were to come and many nations were to be blessed. Just as with circumcision, there must be a spiritual element to these promises. And I think that's clearly shown. I say that with confidence because in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 56, Jesus tells the Jewish audience, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham saw the day of Christ. He saw the day of the one who would redeem sinners from the curse of the law, the curse that comes from sin. Abraham would be the father of those who followed in his footsteps of faith, those united to Jesus Christ, who came to earth to purchase our redemption. If you turn to Galatians chapter 3, in verses 8 and 9, we see this statement even more clearly. It says in verse 8, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Here we see the spiritual aspect of the promise made to Abraham. When we place our faith in Christ, we become the spiritual children of Abraham, and we will receive the promise. What is that? In Romans 8.17, we find the wonderful statement that we who are children of God, and by implication also children of Abraham, are joint, we are fellow heirs with Christ. In Psalm 2, God declares that Christ's inheritance would include all nations and the ends of the earth would be his possession. In the Beatitudes, Christ teaches us that the meek will inherit the earth. The conclusion is this. The earth is ours in Christ. If you don't think this message applies to you, I pray you will listen now. Does our future inheritance affect the way that we consider commands like rejoice always? Christian, you will inherit the world. When you what you think you lack now will seem so small in the age to come. And I know that in a room this size, there's probably a great deal of pain and probably a great deal of a sense of lacking but you may also be familiar with John Newton's illustration where he tells of a man who's joyfully traveling down a road, just going on his chariot, until, and he's very happy until, at some point, the wheel of his chariot breaks. And he becomes very sad and very sorrowful, and he complains the rest of the way, saying, my chariot is broken, my chariot is broken. He's on the way to a great inheritance. He will receive the promise. And yet he complains about the road there. May we not be so. Does our inheritance affect our praying without ceasing? And believe me, I'm preaching to myself here. 
Do we look at our inheritance and pray to God to send laborers into the harvest to bring others into the same inheritance? Do we think upon our inheritance and cry out, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, let your kingdom come. Do we live like Abraham, who was described in Hebrews as looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. We should, because God's tremendous promise of a marvelous, eternal future is guaranteed to us. And finally, under our third heading, we consider the God of justification by faith alone. This is the most important reality surrounding this great doctrine. So let's read verses 16 and 17 one more time. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom we believe, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. The promise is, is granted to us all because of grace. It is granted to us, friends, because of unmerited, unearned favor from God. Paul teaches us here that that is why it depends on faith so that it could accord with grace. Our God is holy, and we rightly stand condemned. But he is gracious. We can trust him. That is why the promise is guaranteed. The promise is guaranteed to all peoples, not just Jews, not just Americans, not just the elite, not just to us here at GOC. It is for many nations so that we can have the wonderful statement in Revelation 5 that by his blood, Christ has ransomed for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and he has made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is the God we worship, the God we praise. We worship a God who gives life to the dead, who is sovereign over all of history, which is what we see in verse 17. And just as he gave a child to a 99-year-old man and his previously childless wife, so he can give life to those who are dead in their trespasses and sin. He can give life to someone like me. You may be here tonight as a regular attender or even as a new visitor. And if you are, I want to welcome you. And uh, perhaps you have never placed your entire faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And I, I speak to you not as one wise enough to follow any set of laws or perform certain ceremonies and rituals and certainly not as one who was able to muster up enough faith on my own but I speak to you as one who was granted grace. I speak to you as one who has been given eternal life 
and the promise that we have spoken of by the grace of God. Friend, the glove of sin, it fits for me. And unfortunately, it fits for you. But the glorious news of this letter and the whole Bible, starting in Genesis, as we have seen tonight, is that your status can be changed. You are offered acquittal from your charges. You can have peace with God and the assurance of all of God's promises. You can be a co-heir of the world. And to do so, as John writes in his gospel, you must receive Christ. What is that? It is to believe in his name. That is to believe in all that he is and all that he has done. Do you trust him? Do you trust him alone to be your righteousness before the judgment of God? Do you repent of your sin? That means to turn away from it and cling to him, cling to Christ as Lord and Savior. Do you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, raised him for your justification. Salvation is offered freely to you today. Lay down any ceremonies or rituals or morality, no matter how pious they may seem, and come to Jesus Christ. Place your faith in him. It's my testimony, as it is of many others in this room, that he has changed our lives, and we'd love to talk to you more about him. I hope he changes your life starting tonight. Let's pray together. Father, we have considered this wondrous teaching that we are justified by faith alone because of your grace. And so, Father, I pray that you will seal these truths to our hearts as much as it accorded with the truth, that we will remember these things. We will remember the promise. We will remember our great inheritance that we have in Christ, that we will be heirs of the world and that we will be with you. Father, we love you, we trust you, and we pray that many others tonight will come to that faith as well. Father, we love you and we exult in you. We rejoice in you. Father, we love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.